Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 61 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Of all the qualities that firefighters have that make them effective at their job, there's one that can be sorely lacking tact. In emergencies, there isn't always time for dialogue, self reflection, diplomacy, and courtesy. It's not a hall pass to be disrespectful or harsh, it's simply a matter of obvious priorities. The trouble is, we all know that reps of skills create reflexive reactions. And what is expected and accepted as short-duration emergency scenes doesn't always translate elsewhere. If to the hammer, everything looks like a nail, eventually it's going to cause some damage, albeit unwittingly, to individuals, work relationships, or attempts to make positive changes. There's a time and place for educated, targeted aggression. It's why we talk about punching fires in the throat, and how we should never find ourselves in a fair fight with a fire because we're there to dominate and win resoundingly. But solving friction points or debating perspectives in the firehouse or boardroom should always take place on equal ground. The most powerful way to prove that your stance is best is to measure it specifically and directly against the strongest counter-arguments, otherwise known as steel manning. It takes patience, civility, and even temperament, and most of all, respect. Through years of experiences within and outside the fire service, My guest this episode has honed his ability to approach the people he engages with a strong sense of mutual respect, to take on things professionally without taking them personally, while never losing sight of the fact that the people matter just as much as the problem. Here's my chat with Brent Sterling. Tell me about where you grew up and a bit about your family and your childhood. Well, I grew up in a a little town in between Sudbury and Sault Ste. Marie called Blind River. When uh, you're heading up to, to Sault Ste. Marie, it's, it has a population of about, I can't even remember what it is, probably around four or 5,000. On the Highway 17, it's one of the bigger populations between Sault Ste. Marie and Sudbury, but it was a different time back then, so it was a very small town feel. So what did mom and dad do for work and brothers and sisters? Give me a bit of uh, the dynamic of your family. My dad was the public school principal, so he was my principal. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. It presented its own challenges, to be sure. I remember as a little kid, he used to take us down to the school on Saturdays. He used to say, you're my kid, sorry for your luck. He'd say, but you're going to learn how to do one of two things really well. You're either going to learn how to take a beating, or you're going to learn how to give out a beating. Because he said, people are going to want to fight you because... I got to remember, this is back well over 45 years ago. So right. different era, different time. Because you were his son. Because I was his son. Because he'd strap somebody or, because that back in the day with straps, right? Couldn't do nothing to him. So they'd come looking for his children. Right. Even my sisters, we used to go down to the school on Saturdays and he taught us all how to fight. And he used to say, when you fight, he said, you fight, gentlemen's fight. Just fists. You knock somebody down, leave them there. If they get back up, knock them down again. I said, but if they do this, like kick you in the groin, or if they uh, start fighting dirty or more than one, he goes, now this is how you fight dirty. And he taught us how to fight dirty because we just did. We had to. When I was growing up, I went more than two weeks without getting into a, a brawl. That was a, a good stint of time. Right. <laughs> so he basically taught you not to go looking for it, but have some self-respect and boundaries and, and know how to defend yourself. 100%. Yeah, if he found out we initiated it, uh, there'd be some discussions going on. But if someone came looking, he said, you got to defend yourself, so you might as well learn how to do it and do it right. I remember one time I got called into the principal's office because normally I never fought at school because students there knew enough not to fight at school, right? I got called in because I had fought 
four other guys. <laughs> and my dad had done whatever to them, strapped them or, or whatever the heck it was. After recess or lunch break, whatever, when the fight was, we get called to the principal's office. I remember sitting there and they, my dad says, so what happened? And I said, well, those guys called my mom a whore, <laughs> my father a, a bastard or whatever the heck it was. Sure. <laughs> These other guys, they just started shitting bricks because <laughs> I'm talking to my father when I said that. So I said, so they wanted to go. So I went. My father says, all right. So he suspended me, strapped them. And I remember walking home as a, this was in public school, right? I remember walking home and I get home. My mom was waiting for me and she goes, Principal called, said you got suspended today. I'm like, yeah. She goes, you wait till your father finds out. He's going to be so mad. <laughs> and I started laughing. I went, come on, Ma. Like, yeah. So the phone rings about 10 minutes later. So now it's my dad calling, not the principal. So he said, boy, he said, you, you really tuned those guys up, right? And I said, well, I kind of had to because there's four of them, right? And he goes, good job. You stick up for your family. And I said, does this mean I can go fishing? He goes, yep, enjoy your day off. Off you go, have nice. fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So you mentioned sisters. So what's your total brothers and sisters? What's the family structure? I have uh, one older brother and my oldest sibling is my sister. And then my oldest brother, I have one brother. And then I have another sister. I was the baby of the family. We adopted two other girls into the family as well. Total is, is six, including the, the adopted members of the family. The other thing that was interesting, when I was growing up, my parents were foster parents. So we saw every type of background, every type of situation that, that you could see. So what my parents did is predominantly what they did when a, a child was seized from a home, they would come to my parents' house and sometimes they'd be there two or three months, sometimes two or three years, but they would just be there interim until they were adopted out or whatever. It taught me a lot of life lessons that I learned by watching what happened. So that every time a new member came into the family, I remember one time, I think there was 14 in the house. Wow. What was the size of the house? Oh, my father's house was a hundred year old, four story, all solid oak timber, like old, old, and it was heated by wood. But whenever a new person came in the house, my father would have a family meeting and he'd say, this is Joey or Billy or whoever. And he didn't hold anything back. He used to say... Joey was physically abused or sexually abused or, or whatever that child's experience was. So he'd say, if this kid takes your toys, don't you dare raise a hand to him because that's all they know. Interesting. And he used to give us rules on how to engage and how to manage that. So as a result of that, because I, I experienced so much stuff, when I grew up into my younger teenage years, I was not a guy you would ever want at your party because I grew up hating drugs so much, like with just a vehement passion because I saw the results from all these kids for years. Alcohol too? Oh yeah. 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 So as a result, when I got a little older and I would go to parties, I would have a beer, but I would never, I shouldn't say never, I wouldn't as a rule get drunk. Right. Right. But if I was at a party and somebody broke out a joint sitting beside me, I got to knock them out. Wow. <laughs> so I, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm, a, you know, I'm a lot older and wiser now. So now I just leave. That never left me. My disdain for illegal drugs has always stayed with me because of I saw the, the carnage that it produced as a kid. Did you start working as a kid early? When was your first job? My first job, I was in grade four. So my dad called me to the office. It was about, about a three-mile walk from the school to the 
post office. So he said, every day, you talk to the secretary, get what has to go out to the post office, and then pick up anything and bring it back. Now, you got to remember, this is well over 40 years ago. There was no DVDs. There was no digital videos. So whenever a teacher wanted to show a film in class, it was a big old reel-to-reel. Reel-to-reel, right. Reel-to-reel. Yeah, and awesome. I was a small kid growing up, always a small kid. Sometimes you'd go to the post office and there'd be 30 reel-to-reel movies. <laughs> I remember they had this great like old Santa Claus bag, big leather satchel, right? And it would be so heavy, I couldn't lift it up. So I'd go behind the counter and the guy at the post office would lift it up onto my back. Then I'd walk. I'd walk back to the school and I had two places I could take a break. One was there was a bench by the close to the main street. I could stop, take a break there because I'd lean the bag on the bench, catch my breath, and then off I go. And the only other place I could take a break was there was a guardrail on the highway. So I could stop, lean the bag against the guardrail. Sometimes it was so heavy that if I laid it down, I was it. I was done. I had to wait till an adult came to help load it back up onto my back so I could get to school. So you're walking down the highway carrying a big leather satchel full of reel-to-reel. Yep. Tape. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I made, I mind you, I was, I was big bucks. I was like Howard Hughes when I was a kid. I think I made like $40 a month for <laughs> hauling this thing every day back and forth from school. So that was my very first job. And then from there, we had a bakery in town. The owner of the bakery, I'd always stop at the bakery all my way to the post office because it was right across the corner. And I'd grab one donut. That was my little treat I did. And then I'd carry the mail back. The guy's name was Kurt Zug. He's, he's deceased now, but he was a, an interesting character. But he called after about a year of watching me carry those reel-to-reel movies back. He called my parents and asked if he could hire me. Because he said he never saw me once drop the bag or whatever, so he asked if he could hire me. So I worked as a baker's assistant for quite a few years. Early hours? Early hours and weekends and all through the summer. Awesome. And you end up leaving home at 15. I left home when I was 15. So my mom and dad were going through some marital strife. I got caught in the middle because I was the only one home. I realized I was getting involved. It wasn't my place to be involved. So I came home one night and I said to my mom and dad, that's it. You guys figure it out. You got to do you. And at the age of 15, I had like 50 bucks in my pocket, like nothing. And I went and got a ticket for the Greyhound bus. And I left Blind River and I moved all the way out to Calgary on my own. Didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out, but I went out there and got some jobs and worked away uh, maybe a, a year or so, year or two. Why Calgary? My brother, he was out in Calgary. He was working on the oil rigs. So he said, come on out and I'll get you a job on the oil rigs. Is that kind of why your parents maybe were okay with you doing what you're doing because you're going to be out there with him? Yeah, probably. But my brother was never home. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure it would have been a lot more stressful for them had I gone out completely on my own but so what were you doing for the year out there i had a couple of jobs baker again funny story because i was walking around trying to figure out what the heck i was going to do to support myself and i walked past this bakery and there was a sign in the window that said help wanted just a cocky young kid right i went into the window pulled the sign out i went to the cashier and i handed it to her and i said what do you want me to do first (laughs) (laughs) and the lady goes what i said well help wanted here you go what do you want me to do first? She goes, you wait here. And she went and got the owner. And the owner said the same thing, like, you're a cocky little, you know. And I said, yes, sir, I got experience. And what I said to him is, I'll work for two or three days for free. You can see what I can do. 
If you don't like it, I'll leave, never bug you again. If you like what I do, then give me the job. And so he goes, all right. So I did. I worked for a couple of days, and after a few days, he hired me, and I worked there for most of the time I was out west. So what about school then? Because you left at 15, that was probably ninth grade around there. Yep. So yeah. The other part of the challenge is made it make sense to me to leave home at that age. I've always had a learning disability. I went partway through grade nine, and I'd hand in reports, and the teacher would say content was 80% or whatever, and he'd say it was a good report, but spelling and grammar, and, and I'd failed. I just kept failing, like from a reading and writing perspective, right? And I was like, this is a waste of time. Like, what the hell am I doing, right? That with the stuff that was going on at home, I just, well, that's it, I'm out. So formal education before I left home, I had partway through grade nine. <laughs> so did they diagnose you with learning disability or is this something you discovered later on? Oh, no. They knew about it? Oh, yeah. Okay. In public school, my father was a principal, right? So he knew how I was performing academically. All of my brothers and sisters are very academic, right? Very smart people. He had his kind of his ugly duckling off on the side and he's like, what the heck? This kid ain't learning. They had me doing all kinds of tests and all that type of stuff. And it was an interesting story. I had a, did a bunch of tests with this guy who had like a PhD in psychology or psychiatry, whatever, whatever this guy's discipline was. And my father asked me to talk to him because he wanted to figure out what my challenges were. It's one of the few times in my life I saw my dad get mad, like maybe punch somebody in the face mad. I never saw my dad mad. Like I saw him do a lot of stupid stuff, but I never seen him mad. And I remember sitting in the office and this guy said to my dad, he goes, Mr. Sterling, he said, your son is a well-adjusted, polite young man who's destined to be a ditch digger for the balance of his life. Wow. And my dad, he got up he actually leaned over the table, grabbed the side of the table that this guy was sitting on, leaned right over and it was like a half an inch from his face how dare you tell my son he's going to do this or do that, right? And I was like, holy crap, I've never seen my dad do that before. I think this was something brand new. So when we left, he looked at me and he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, don't you ever, ever listen to people like that. He goes, you can do or be anything you want to be. He says, granted, you got your own challenges. He said, don't you ever listen to people like that. (laughs) (laughs) And so did you end up going back to school after that? Yeah, so after I moved out west, I was out there for about a year. I came home, got a job on the Great Lakes as a commercial fisherman. Loved that job. It was an awesome job. Slept on the boats for usually two or three nights, and you'd go out You'd go out on a run, you'd uh, set the nets, sleep on the boat. Next morning, lift, and then set, pack the fish. And, and after about the third day, you'd run back to harbor and pack it nice and all that, and then it really was a good job. I enjoyed the hard work of it. Outside every day was awesome. But at that time, I met a young lady, fell into lust, I guess I'll call it. I was too young to know what love was. Because at that time, I would have been maybe 17. So I remember looking at it going, if I have ambitions of getting married someday, I'm not going to raise a family as a fisherman, making terrible wages. So I went back to my dad and I said, look, I don't know what the answer is, but I need to do something so that I can get things figured out. And we went to a couple of different schools that specialized in students with learning disabilities. So I ended up going to this school. My dad helped me pick it. It was called Appleton Boys School. It was a paramilitary organization where the students actually lived on the campus. I was there for a year. They taught the students there the way they needed to be taught in order to learn. 
when I w- went into that school, I was probably struggling with like grade three reading, but I could always fake it, right? I could fake it in class. I could, I could hide my challenges all through my life pretty easily, but there it was kind of laid bare. They forced you to learn how to deal with it and manage it. So I went there for a whole year. At the end of the first year, I couldn't go back because I was now too old. They had an age cut off. So from there, I went to a school in Aurelia called Craig Reading. I had my own private teacher for a year and a half. Gwen was the name. I actually loved the lady to death. She was exceedingly patient with me. And in that year and a half, I was with Gwen every single day, like Monday to Friday, eight hours a day learning. I went from reading and writing probably around a grade five level to reading and writing at a college level. And all she did was taught me a different method of doing what I had to do. I remember having one of my buddies over at the house and we're actually having a beer and he looks on the coffee table and he goes, who's phonics book? <laughs> like grade four or grade five phonics books, right? With mine, I'm sitting there drinking a beer and I go, oh, that, that's my, uh, my nephews. He came and, and left, it, left it here. But it was my phonics book and I was reading I before E except after C or used as A in neighboring way. I had to learn all that stuff again sitting there drinking a beer with grade four, grade five phonics books, learning that stuff. Everything that you do in life, you're going to pay a price. You're going to pay a price for the the choices you make or the choices you don't make. And so I'm very thankful to my dad because when I went to him and I said, look, yes, working on the Great Lakes as a commercial fisherman, it's a good life. It's good, honest, hard work, but there's not a whole lot of success from an economic standpoint. Success, in my mind, is not just about economics, but, and I said, there's, there's real challenges there. So my dad spent the time and helped me get into those schools, right, and, and mentored me and, and went to uh, government and helped fought for me, advocated for me to get the money so I could get that learning. Like I was saying before, you, you're going to pay a price. You're going to pay a price for the decisions you do make. You're going to pay a price for the decisions you don't make. So I paid the price. I paid the price by sitting there drinking beer with grade five phonics books, learning how to read and write. But is it the right investment? <laughs> Absolutely, right? It helped lay the foundation for my entire career path forward. As opposed to just ignoring it and moving forward and being limited by that. Yeah, my theory on that is every person you meet in life has a sad story. Every person. It could be they can't read or their parents were alcoholics or... Their families were poor or whatever the heck. Every person you meet has a sad story. The only thing that matters in life is what you do with it, right? You can either use it as an excuse to stick your thumb in your mouth and suck your thumb and go, oh, woe is unto me. Or you can use it as an excuse to excel, become more, do more, work harder. My particular challenge was reading and writing. And it still is, to be sure. Like, if you ever get an email from me, you'll look at it and go, what the heck, right? But for the most part, I think I've learned how to cope with it. I worked my way through those challenges. You ended up graduating college. I did. So after I spent a year and a half with Gwen, I went to Georgian College and graduated from the machine shop program. Then I moved on and went and became a, an apprentice tool and die maker. I did that for my entire apprenticeship, graduated with my journeyman's ticket, my master when I was an apprentice, after I got my ticket, I was pretty proud of myself, maybe a little too proud. And he's like, no, no, no. He said, no. He said, you got a ticket. He said, but you're not a tradesman now. Now you become a journeyman. And he'd say, you got to quit. Work for about four or five years. Don't work any place more than six months. Work, quit, work, quit. 
learn about hydraulics and pneumatics and all that, all the different disciplines that are covered within tool and die making. He said, you got to learn it all. He said, after you do that, you can call yourself a tradesman. He said, and after your 30 years, he said, then you can call yourself a master. So I took the man's advice. I took his advice partially because it was good advice. And the other part is I got laid off. <laughs> <laughs> so I went around and I worked you know, probably six, eight months, different places, got a lot of different experience in heat compression molding, injection molding, stamping, obviously, building robots and all that, robotics and that type of stuff. So I, uh, I got a well-rounded experience. When I kind of found the company I was happy with and I stayed, it was a place called TRW, Automotive Company. I did very well there. Uh, stamping plant presses ranging from about uh, 20 tons to 1,000 tons. I worked on the bench for a year, maybe two, I can't remember. And then I got asked if I'd take a job as a supervisor. So I became a, a supervisor and I worked my way up through the ranks. And at the end of it, I was a production superintendent with about 160, 170 staff that I was responsible for. And what was the first exposure to the fire service? When did that happen? My wife and I bought a little house in uh, in Wabashim, and my next door neighbor, again, he's deceased, but Gord Salos. Loved the man to death. Great guy. Loved him to death. He was a great neighbor. So I'd be out in the backyard just talking with him, and his pager would go off, and he'd go. Off he'd go, running. It was a volunteer department. And he'd come back, and I'd say, where the hell, like, what are you doing? Like, where are you, like, what are you doing? So I kept asking him, what, how does it work? And I put in my application, took me three years to get in. Like back in those days, there was, once someone joined the fire department, they're on like, forever. Like when I joined, finally got on Wabashine, the average year's service was 25 years. Wow. Right? And the funny story is when Gord retired, I got his badge number. So he kind of said, I'm leaving. He said, you got to take this guy. He's driving me nuts. <laughs> Just take him because he's bugging me. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of onboarding was there to teach oh. you? Oh, God. When I got the call, they called me down to the fire hall, and they said, are you still interested in being a, a firefighter? I'm like, yes, absolutely. I want to do it. So they went down to the fire hall, and they said, here's the keys to the fire hall. Here's your pager. Here's your bunkers. Don't do anything stupid. And what's said at the hall stays at the hall. Uh, yep, that's it. Congratulations. You're a firefighter. That was it. That was my entire onboarding. And about three weeks later, I was actually fighting my very first fire. Didn't have a clue what the heck I was doing. Because I don't think I maybe had one practice since I joined. And it was funny because I showed up, right? I was like, oh, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? So I went to my district chief at the time and I said, what do you want me to do? He goes, you see the guy over there on the nozzle? I went, yep. He said, go back him up. Okay. Didn't know what that meant, but I'm going to go back him up. So I went up to the guy and I said, hey, I said, I'm here to back you up. What do you want me to do? He said, well, just grab the hose and lean into me. I said, okay. <laughs> so I'm standing there leaning into it, middle of the, like in the winter, right? And uh, my captain comes around the corner smoking a cigarette and he goes, yeah, he said, you better keep an eye on this wall, boys. She looks kind of ripe. Don't know what ripe meant, but all right, I'll keep an eye on the wall. It was snowing and blowing. So I've kind of tucked my head into the, the guy in front of me. All of a sudden I hear yelling, hey, 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 hey. And I turn around and look behind me and the guys are like waving at me going, get out of there. The guy in the front of the nozzle had bailed off to my left. And when I turned back up, the wall was actually falling. So I dropped the hose and I ran and the wall came down poof, right behind us. So I looked around like, oh, so I dragged the nozzle, the, the hose out. I got to play with the nozzle now. <laughs> <laughs> Is this residential or industrial? Residential. Okay. 
Captain comes walking around the corner again, still smoking a cigarette. And he goes, yeah, I thought that wall of kind of ripe. He goes, yeah. Now you know what ripe means. Yep. Now I know what ripe means. So I'm on the nozzle. Back in when I first joined too, the chief didn't want you putting on an SCBA because it costs X number of dollars to get a f- cylinder refilled. So if you put it on, you say, well, what the heck are you doing? That costs money. Get that thing off your back, right? <laughs> no SCBA. And I'm throwing water. Don't know what the heck I'm doing, but I'm throwing water. And my captain says, hey, he says, uh, you see that fridge? Yep. He goes, knock it over. Now this fridge from the wall that just fell down, I had to run over, like there, there's the wall. Then there was like inside the structure. It was maybe 10 feet into the structure. It's burning, not super crazy, but it's, it's good fire going. He goes, knock it over. I, okay. So I shut off the nozzle. <laughs> I ran into the house, pushed it over and come running back out. And my captain was standing there and he's looking at me, he goes, what the hell are you doing? I said, you told me to knock it over. He said, I meant with the hose. I said, oh, with the hose. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was my very first structure fire. And it's funny, like you just didn't know what you didn't know, right? And you're just very clear that when you were told to do something, you just go and do it. Absolutely. You don't ask why, you don't oh, clarify. Yeah, yeah, you he told me to knock the fridge over. I went and knocked the fridge right. over. It, does, it doesn't dawn on you to say <laughs> how or why or yeah. yeah. <laughs> just do what you're told directly. Yeah. And so what progressed from there? Did you promote? Did you take on a captain's position? How was the progression of that career? I was only on a couple of years. And then that's when on the fire marshal office came out and they said, they're coming out with the Ontario curriculum. Then it came out with no beard. Half the guys in my station looked like ZZ Top at the time. Hit after hit after hit. So we lost like well over half of our firefighters. They're like, I am doing friggin' homework. And I've been doing this for 25, 30 years. I'm not doing homework. And uh, so we lost our district chief and two of our three captains. We had to refill the officer's ranks. And I remember, I'm only on for maybe two years. I'm still learning. And how old are you at this point? In my 20s. Yeah. Yeah. So the one captain who stayed, he got bumped to district chief. When we voted captains on back then, there was no testing. There was no... Competition. No competition. They said in the meeting, they'd say, okay, we need a new captain. We'll open it up to nominations. And so someone would say, I nominate Fred or Sam or or whoever. And then you'd say, all right, are you going to stand for the position? And you'd say, yep, yeah, I'll stand for the position. And they'd say, okay, get out. And then they'd have a secret ballot vote. Everyone would vote. And when you come back in, you're the new captain. So that's how I got my captain's rank. I got voted in by the the members of the station. It was an interesting journey because I didn't have hardly any experience, certainly not enough to take on that role. Right. As a firefighter fully yet, let alone becoming an officer. Exactly. Immediately after I got on, I went to the chief and I said, I heard of what this place called the fire college. What's that all about? So the chief goes, oh yeah, you know, we send some people there occasionally. I said, can I go? And at that time, they had a course called the Volunteer Company Officers Course. It was a one-week or two-week course. And if anyone is old enough, had <laughs> been on this job long enough, they had this huge town, model of town. And then you would have the class, the incident commander would sit in the classroom and they'd move cameras around. You'd move little Tonka trucks around the city and put out fire scenarios and all oh, that. Oh, like that. a tabletop town model. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I did that course and I was there for a week and I came back and I remember meeting with the chief going, oh my God. I know what I don't know now. I have an idea of what I don't know. I still don't know what right. I still don't know. Right. And so I went to the chief and I said, there's this newfangled thing out called accountability. We got to do this. And he's like, all right, knock yourself out. You want to, so 28 years ago, I implemented the first accountability system in the township. 
And it worked so well that the chief ended up doing it all four other stations at the time. But I fell in love with the fire college. I fell in love with learning the disciplines from people smarter than myself. So I, I went quite a bit to the fire college. So after I did that for a while, the chief promoted me to training officer, kept that position for quite a few years. Was there anything transitioning from being a volunteer to the, going to the OFM? Were you doing both at the same time? How did that happen? So what happened there was I was 18 and a half years as a volunteer. My day job was still TRW. At the time, I was a plant superintendent. Automotive took a huge downturn. I lost my job, along with a lot of other really, really good people. So I came home and I said to my wife, I said, automotive's given me a really good standard of living. I got nothing to complain about. It was good work. It was, it was hard work, but it was good work. But I said, kind of done with the automotive thing. At first, I wanted to become a police officer. I've never worked in my whole life. I've never worked so hard to get a job. A buddy of mine, Don James, loving to death. He's a retired OPP. He was saying, you should become an OPP. So I did. I did like 200 hours right along. I did all the testing. I did all the training. And then I got gonged out for my hearing. The one thing there's nothing I could do about it. If it was vision, I could get laser surgery. If it was fail the test, I could study harder. If it was the beep test or the running, like I could train hard. Like, But hearing, it is what it is. You're out. But I did a whole pile of work to get me to the position where I could apply up to and including getting my grade 12. I was out of school for like 25 years and I actually went back and got my grade 12 just so I could qualify to apply for the OPP. After having graduated college. <laughs> After having graduated college. But it was funny because you still had to have your grade 12. So I had to go back, get my grade 12, even though I graduated college. Take a couple classes like math and... Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I did that. But when I got booted for my hearing, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do now. Fire was always there. My wife used to kind of laugh. She'd say, well, I know exactly who your mistress is, the fire hall. The kids were going nuts or whatever, or, or if wanted a break, I'd go down to the fire hall. Fire hall was always a huge part of my life, always. I got onto it shortly after we were married, actually very shortly after we were married, about five years after we were married. What happened when I got called back to TRW eventually, they said, we want you to come back. We laid off too many people. Can you come back? And I said, yeah, I'll come back, but I'm going to take a whole bunch of courses through the fire college. So I said, so you can never tell me I can't have time off or whatever. In a very short period of time, I went from maybe going to the college, maybe once every two or three years or whatever it was. I went through and I did my firefighter one, firefighter two, the company officer. And the company officer program was 16 weeks under the old curriculum. I did my fire prevention officer training, which was 20 weeks. All of this training, Probably I spent an altogether about a year at the fire college. With that work, I started applying to the OFM. Actually, I started applying to different municipal fire services. Never had any luck. And then because of all the, the training I had in the background, I thought, oh, I'll try the OFM. Applied a few times, never even got a call back. And then I was talking to a person I knew who worked for the OFM, and I said, what am I doing wrong? Because I said, you know my qualifications. And she said, yeah, you got everything we're looking for and then some. She says, show me your resume. And I showed her the resume and she goes, there's your problem. She goes, you're not making it past the HR people to get to the point where you're able to have an interview. She spent an hour with me and said, format your resume this way. The very next time I applied, I got the interview and I got the job. I got hired as a, a specialist and I was with the OFM for a little over 11 years. And is your time as a training officer and you're spending a lot of time in the college. So what made you fall in love with instructing and the academic and or practical side of teaching firefighting? I really, really enjoyed teaching through the fire college. 
when I was with the OFM and even prior to whenever training at in-house or even training at the fire college. I think the biggest thing that I enjoyed was taking someone who didn't know what they were doing and watching that, that progression from having problems, learning how to put on their SCBA to effectively and safely putting out a fire. Just watching that progression from a student, I have always loved doing that. And the other part of it, I can honestly say I don't think I've ever taught a course where I haven't learned from the students. It's always really fun to say, okay, this is how you do whatever the discipline is. Say you're working with ladders, something as simple as ladders, and you get someone who's a, a roofer, and they go, well, have you ever thought about doing, no, but damn, like that's, that's pretty good. You look at it and you go, yeah, okay, and I'm going to steal that and then uh, make that part of how I train. Whenever you teach, you always learn from your students. My father used to say, every man that you meet in life is superior knowledge to you in something. If you listen, you can learn. So I've always enjoyed pulling those little nuggets out of the students. And so you grew up in a very grit-saturated time where it really was kind of a suck it up and bear through it and here are your barriers and here's what you need to overcome and you needed to physically defend yourself, right? That's just the way it was. But you also experienced then growing up with a learning disability and, and knowing that that was a specific challenge that needed more. You understood that people just can't be painted with the same brush and given the same education and getting the same result. Did that sort of affect the way you approach teaching people where you had this marriage of this is the job and this is what needs to be done? Did you have a like an empathetic, more compassionate side as well when people were struggling as a way to support them to get where they need to be? Oh, yeah. I've taught students... And because I grew up with some of the same challenges in your teaching, you can, at least I can, I can identify someone who's fake reading the books. I can tell after class, certainly never during, you'd never call them out to say, hey, is there any extra training that you would require? Or how are you making out with the, If you dig a little bit, a lot of times they'll say, well, yeah, I, I can't read very well. And I say, well, you come with me. Come with me, come on over here, or we'll meet after class and we'll have a a coffee and we'll go through this stuff to figure it out, right? In my experience, you'll hear people refer to other people and they say, I have an intelligence of like an IQ. I have intelligence of, of blah, blah, or whatever the heck mm -hmm. it is. I've never subscribed to that theory. I always believe that people have intelligences, plural. And the way I would describe it is this. If you take a diamond ring, the diamond being that person, and then if you take a real nice diamond ring, there's all of those steel hooks that hold that diamond in place. Those hooks are what I would consider to be someone's intelligences. Some people are mechanically inclined. Some people learn through hearing. Some people learn through seeing. Most people, particularly in the fire service, learn through doing. While you may have weak facets holding that diamond in place, being your, you as a person or your intelligence, or you may have some that are straight up gone. It doesn't take away from the diamond. It's just that one little facet is a little bit weaker or stronger. And if you can figure out, if you have a student with that broken facet or that weak facet, and you figure out where they're stronger, they can still be successful. If you're patient enough, you can get through them. And when you do that, that's fun. Yeah, so having people look at what they're strong in and getting confidence from that as like a foundation and realizing that the weak areas of them aren't forever. It's not holding them back in their life, they just need to pay more attention to those other aspects. Yep. You ever heard of a guy named Les Brown? No. If you ever want a good read, he's a brilliant man. I actually had the privilege of meeting him once. So Les Brown was born in an abandoned factory, was raised by his grandmother. because His mother went out of the picture. He was diagnosed as 
back in those days, they called it retarded. They said you were retarded. And I've read his books. And then this, this one book, and actually in one of the speech I, I heard him give, he said that he was, he was in public school, and the, the math teacher said, come on up and answer the question. And he goes, sir, I can't answer that. I'm retarded. The teacher said, you get up here. And he showed him how to do it. And then here's the line that Les Brown said, and that he got that from his teacher. He said, never, ever let another man's opinion of you become your reality, unless they can see more in you than you can at that time. I've met people through the fire, through different things, through different ways of life, and they'll go, oh, I can't do that because, because of this challenge or that challenge or reading or, or whatever their challenges are. And, and I'm not taken away from the challenges because they're real, but don't let it become your reality. If you want it bad enough and you're willing to pay a price, you can muscle through that and come out the other side. That's awesome. So over your time with EOFM, those 11 years, what were your roles and what was that experience like? How did that manifest over that time? I was originally hired as a fire protection specialist. I would work with advisors. The advisors were the frontline contacts to the municipal fire chiefs, chiefs, councils, that type of stuff. And I would work with advisors, and if they had a bigger project, I'd come in and help them coordinate those bigger projects. It was a great job. I, I will say this. I love working for the OFM. It's good work. It's important work, right? It really is. Like it, It's a lot of fun. So I did that for probably a couple of years. I got called in by the assistant deputy fire marshal and he said, you actually came from fire, right? And I was like, yep, I actually came from fire. And he goes, we have a need in the, our emergency preparedness response unit. In that unit, what they did is coordinated hazardous materials response and structural building collapse anywhere in the province where that municipality didn't have the capacity. So we would deploy one of our municipal teams, and the municipal teams were composed of municipal fire services who would, under the authority of the fire marshal, deploy outside of their jurisdiction to deal with that. I was in EPRU for about a year and a half. Then I got called in by the fire marshal of the day, Ted Vinslavic. He said, you're pretty good at managing projects. And I went, yeah, yeah, not bad. Do you remember the Pan Am games? I was responsible for coordinating everything for Pan Am as it related to fire. Wow. So it was a fun project. It was about a year and a half project. And I remember the first time I met with the fire marshal, he said, I want you to run this project, deal with everything. He said, but you're not allowed to have any money. I don't want you to spend any money. And I said, you know what, sir, with all due respect, give the job to somebody else. Thanks for the opportunity, but I'm not interested. He goes, I'm the fire marshal. I said, yes, sir, you are. Not questioning your authority. Not questioning your authority. I said, but you're guaranteeing my failure. If you're telling me I can't spend a penny to do this project, I, I, I can't do it. Now I said, if you tell me to be a good steward of the taxpayer's dollars and invest the money prudently and make sure it's all legit, no problem. And I'll spend as much as I need to spend, but I'll be parsimonious with, with the taxpayer's dollars. So he says, well, fine, off you go. It was a great project. I worked with a young lady from the OFM. She absolutely made me look brilliant. I love her to death. I would go from meeting to meeting with municipalities and elected officials and, and stuff like that. And she would, I'd say, where am I going? Who am I talking to? She goes, oh, you're talking to this person. Last time you met, you did this and you said that and blah, blah, blah. I would give her all of the credit to actually being the brains behind the organization because <laughs> she kept me on track. At the end of the day, I was in a meeting one time with, I think they call it PPEG. And it was a branch of government that gave out the monies. 
couple of funny stories there. So I'm in a meeting. First time I had a meeting with PPEGs, there were some like deputy ministers and high-ranking government officials. There was a deputy fire marshal, the chief of emergency management, and this guy who I sat right beside, and I didn't know who he was. I just sat there, right? And this guy sitting immediately beside me was the president of the Pan Am Games itself. And so we're going through and we're talking about the planning and the money and stuff. And this guy says, oh, and there's, there's this one municipal fire department they're just trying to screw the taxpayers' dollars, and he wants X number of money, amount of money to have fire protection services. And it's one of those moments in life where you kind of forget where you are. You forget your audience. The fire chief that this guy was talking about is a fire chief who I have immense respect for. He's a true gentleman. He, this guy knows his job. And I looked at him and I said, who the hell do you think you are? And the guy goes, what? And I said, how dare you talk about a chief like that? How dare you? I said, when did that chief identify that risk as a risk in his municipality? And the guy goes, well, I don't know. And I said, well, God damn it, you should know what you're talking about. So you talk to these. I said, he identified that five years ago as a risk in his municipality. Now you're putting an athlete's village in his jurisdiction and he wants to put a truck closer. And I said, that was identified before Pan Am was even thought about. So don't you ever talk about that chief like that again. And I remember looking around the table and all these deputy ministers and high-ranking government officials, and they're all kind of standing there with their mouths open. I went, oh, damn it. You know? <laughs> so after the meeting, the deputy fire marshal and the chief of emergency management said, uh, Brent, let's, uh, let's go uh, have a talk. All right. <laughs> all right. So I said, well, I know I'm off the project. I just don't know if I'm fired. Right. <laughs> and you know what? I'll give those gentlemen credit. They looked at me and they go, screw me, you deserved it. Wow. I'm like, woohoo. Yeah. <laughs> I get to keep my job. Nice. Nice. <laughs> but the upside of it was every time that guy was in a meeting, if he talked about anything fire, he'd say a lot of and he'd turn to me and go, is that right, Brent? And I go, yeah, in that case, you're right. That's legit or not legit or, or whatever. It was a great project. When I first got assigned that project too, I went to PPEGS and I went to the lady in charge of a whole process from the financial perspective. And I set up a meeting with her and I said, I'd like to spend two or three hours with you. So she took my meeting and I said, uh, at the end of this program, when Pan Am is all over, I said, you're going to audit me, aren't you? And she goes, absolutely. And I said, okay, explain to me your audit process. And so she explained the audit process, how it works and what they're going to look for. So I sat there and I took copious amounts of notes. And then so all through my planning, we planned for the audit. And at the end of the games, when everything was said and done, we had two six-inch binders and the auditors came in and they opened it up and they just kept going, well, damn. The fire marshal told me afterwards that the whole audit took like 45 minutes. He said other places, other jurisdictions that were there for like days and weeks auditing every single thing. Because they're expecting to find a mess. They're expecting to find a mess. And it was completely organized exactly the way they wanted it. Awesome. And the fire marshal said they walked out saying it was the easiest audit they'd ever done. Tell me about the time you destroyed two doors because of the neighbor burning leaves. <laughs> yeah. We got called out for activated smoke alarm. And this is fairly early. And I was like a fairly new captain. I'm still learning the job, let alone how to be a, a good officer. So we pulled up and I could see the smoke coming out of the soffits. I said, all right, gentlemen, let's go. We got ourselves a fire here. I could hear the smoke alarm activated. I said, get me in that door. And on the, the face of the, the door, the alpha sector where I had command set up, there was two doors. I said, get me in that door right now. Went and was locked. 
So they take an axe and they chop, 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 Captain, we can't get in there. That's well. Go to that door then. They go to this door. Chop, 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 chop. Can't get in. I said, well, go back to the first door then. And then finally, they make entry. I said, okay, stretch a line, find out where the fire is. So they go in, and they're maybe in there three or four minutes. They call out, and they go, uh, command, we got nothing showing in here. I can see the smoke, and I can hear the smoke alarm. Like, there's something in there. And they're like, we can't find anything. So I said, well, I guess I got to do it myself, right? So I walked into the building. I'm walking through. So now I walked from the alpha sector. I'm now standing at the Charlie sector towards the backyard. And I looked out the backyard window at the back of the house, and the neighbor behind was burning leaves. <laughs> and the smoke perfectly wrapped around this house. And it looked like a house fire. Right? So I didn't destroy one. I destroyed two doors. Was there smoke in the house? Because obviously the smoke alarm was going off. Nope. Nope. Uh, well, mm-hmm. maybe a very little bit. There was like an open window. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So enough, enough to, to set the alarm. I'll have to set the inner alarm up. But <laughs> like, I love telling that story to the new firefighters or young officers saying, this is why you do a 360. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I remember I, I got on the radio and I, I called Chief Duncan, my fire chief at the time. And I said, uh, Chief, can you come to this scene? He's like, sure. Anything I need to know? And I said, Eh, I'm not putting this over the air. <laughs> <laughs> so he came and uh, I told him exactly what I did. My fault. I didn't do my 360. If I would have known that, I probably wouldn't have destroyed two doors. But the chief, again, God bless him. He goes, oh, you heard his activated smoke alarm? I'm like, yes, sir. I heard it activated. He goes, you're good. You did the right thing. Moral of the story, do your 360. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me about promoting a six-year-old kid to firefighter. Oh, yeah. Another interesting story. So we went to this fire and it was started out as a grass fire that got into the bush. Uh, we had two stations there, probably in the neighborhood of like 40 or 50 firefighters. We're there for four or five hours just doing what we do. At the end of the, the fire, we're cleaning up and the chief comes up to me and he goes, I need a red hat. And I'm like, yeah, chief, what do you need? And he says, the kid inside set the fire. Go in and scare the hell out of him. And at that point, I was already a seasoned dad, so I, you know, I knew how to handle kids, right? I and mean, there's no, like, top C program at this point? No, no, or, no, no, right? this is before that. I'm like, no problem, chief, I'll go. So I go into the house, and dad is standing there with little Johnny. And dad says, this fireman wants to talk to you, and if he wants to spank you, he can spank you. And the dad turns around and walks out. Now, I'm expecting to find a kid, like, three, four feet tall. And what I see is a kid just a little wee guy. I'm like, well, damn it. Like, I can't even get upset, right? So I asked little Johnny, I said, you know, what happened? And he goes, well, he says, I was playing with the matches and it went poof and I ran. There was no maliciousness. There was no intent. It just curiosity got him. So I gave him the, if you find matches, give it to an adult. I gave him the fire safety speech. And I said to him, I said, now come on over here, stand right here. And the kid's kind of skirting along the Chesterfield thinking I'm going to give him a swat on the ass, right? So he stands there and I said, now raise your right hand. And I said, repeat after me. I promise to be a good firefighter or whatever the heck I said to this kid. And the kid repeated it. And I said, you know what that means? I said, you're a firefighter now. And I said, and I'm your captain. And I said, and a firefighter never, ever lies to his captain, ever. I said, do you promise me you'll never play with matches? And if you promise me, if you find something like that, you'll give it to your mom and dad. And the kid's like, yes, sir. And I said, okay. I said, then, now remember, I'm your captain. Don't you lie to me. He said, oh, I promise, I promise. So I came out of the out of the house, and the guys were standing beside the truck, and they're all kind of laughing. They go, oh, what'd you do, you big meanie? Did you spank him? And I said, nope, I just deputized him. <laughs> <laughs> 
maybe that should be our promotional process and <laughs> hiring process and, <laughs> yeah, exactly. in the service, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the pink tutu speech. What's that about? Well, pink tutu speech is a lesson I learned from a, another one of my, my failures in life. Back in my automotive days, when I got promoted to being a supervisor, right, I was fairly new at it. I had three, they called them shift hands that reported directly to me. And I had other units, but in the press room, I had three shift hands. This shift hand had about 25 staff report to him or her. I was on a job for maybe two or three weeks. And I called in my shift hand one time and I said, I said, have a seat. And I started into him. I said, you know what? You suck. You don't do this and you don't do that. And you don't. And, and I gave him a five or six things that I didn't like the fact that he was or was not doing. And he looked at me and he goes, you know, Brent, he said, you never once asked me to do any of those things. You're right. I said, I suck. I said, you know what? I'm sorry. I said, you're 100% right. I said, yeah, that's my fault. I said, tell you what. I said, give me a couple of days and we'll have this conversation again. So what I came up with over the years of realizing that it was my job to clearly lay out expectations and all that, I came up with my pink tutu speech. I used it for years. I still use it even in the fire service. I'm not going to give you the whole speech because the whole speech is about an hour long. But at the heart of it, what I do is anybody that I work directly with, either in a supervisory capacity or if I report to them, I have the pink tutu speech. And at the heart of it, what it is, is the scenario is I'm in a meeting and my boss stands up. We're in front of everybody, like say 50 employees in the plant. And I report to my boss and I manage my staff. And my boss says to everyone, starting tomorrow... Everyone wears pink tutus. The only acceptable answer out of my mouth was, God damn it, that's awesome. Where's mine? I want mine right now. This is perfect. I, I'm so excited. Now, if I were to turn to him in that meeting and, and say, or him or her, uh, and say, well, that's the dumbest thing I think I've ever heard of. Like, why would you do this? Like, that doesn't make sense. What have I done? All I've done is I've shot myself in the foot. Or undermined him or given other people a opportunity to doubt and question. Yeah, but even worse than that, could that individual, if they're the boss, there's still no doubt that they're the boss. Whether you like it or not, everyone's going to wear the pink tutus. But if I turn to him and say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, like, what the heck? All I've said to my staff, anybody who reports now to me, you go ahead and talk trash about me anytime you want. I've just done it to my boss, or even worse, if I have a, a subsequent meeting and I say to my staff, I met with them or her, they're not listening to me. I tried arguing, but we still got to wear the pink. Uh, what if I say, boss doesn't listen to me, boss doesn't respect my opinion, go ahead and talk smack about me all day long. The boss is still the boss. The boss is still in charge. Right or wrong, they're still in charge. So the only acceptable answer out of me is, that's awesome. I want mine. However, I consider it to be part of my job. Part of my duties is to protect my bosses or my senior officers from their own stupidity. I'll transition the speech a little bit. If I have someone who is now is going to report directly to me, what I'll say to them is if we're in that same scenario and I'm the person saying pink tutus, your answer is that's awesome. Where's mine? However, I expect you to come into my office, close the door and say, that's the stupidest thing I think I've ever heard. And we'll have a conversation. And I say, it's your job to protect me from my own stupidity. It's part of your job to challenge me on decisions that I make. But you're teaching them time and place and process and respect. If it's done in the right time and the right process, 
I always tell them, you should expect to win as minimum 50% of our arguments or conversations. And if you've got a better mousetrap, God bless you. We'll go with yours. But there are times when I'm going to say, no, it's pink tutus and that's what it is. And when you leave this office, I expect you to treat it as though it's your idea. The other side of that conversation is, I always tell someone who reports directly to me, particularly if they're in a managerial role, they can expect my unequivocal support in a scenario. An employee's working and I walk past them and they're scrubbing the floor with a toothbrush. I'm just something silly. And that person says, yeah, the supervisor told me to f- scrub the floor with the toothbrush. This is stupid. Well, my only answer I would give is, well, what are you talking to me for? Keep going. But I reserve the right to call that supervisor and say, why are you doing this? Make me understand it. Where I will change it is if it breaks my rules of life, is if it's illegal, immoral, or unsafe, I'm going to change it immediately on the spot. Then we'll have that conversation as well. But if it's not illegal, immoral, or unsafe, my staff can expect that I'll support them knowing that as much as I expect them to challenge me, I will challenge them. And they can explain why they think that's the right thing to do. But let's say at the end of that conversation, the decision made that it's not the right choice. I'm not going to go out and tell that employee, stop scrubbing the floor with the toothbrush, that you are. Because if I go out, they're going to go, ah, well, if I got a problem now, all I got to do is talk to this guy. And now what I've done is I've made my job harder. And now I have to do this person's job and mine. That's my kind of abbreviated pink tutu speech, but it's clearly laying out my expectations of anybody that I work with, clearly laying out what they should expect from me in return and having that conversation. And again, I learned that lesson just because, well, I sucked. I failed the first couple of times I did that, but I learned that lesson. And so managing a business, managing a fire hall, managing people, if you can manage people well, you can achieve great things, particularly if you give your staff the latitude and the freedom to to be good at what they're good at. Sometimes you have to give some course corrections, and that's okay. But if you let your staff do their job, you can achieve amazing things with them. So lay out expectations. Be very clear on those. Give the people what they need in order to meet those expectations. Don't micromanage them. Give them personal respect. And that's the foundation. That's the foundation. And I also hear a lot of, in what you're saying, learn how to have professional discussions without taking them personally. Do you think we have a problem in the fire service in general with people not being able to have constructive, critical conversations as professionals without taking things personally? It is kind of a challenge. And with society, it's so much different than when I was a young man. Even how you address people. You can get yourself into a jackpot just by calling someone sir or ma'am. In fact, I actually got in trouble not too long ago I walked in a setting and I said, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, blah, blah, right? And no one complained right to my face, but someone came up afterward and said, you shouldn't say ladies and gentlemen. Okay. So now I think, morning, everyone. But that's an extreme type of scenario in my mind. When I was growing up at a hockey tournament, you either won or you didn't. There was no participation ribbons. It gave young people, certainly in my era, more mechanisms to deal with failure. And by that, I mean, it's okay to fail. Some of the best lessons you're going to learn in life are by failing. And it's okay not to win the gold medal. It's okay to come in last, as long as you learn from it. And now, with everyone gets a ribbon. They could not show up and they still get a ribbon. Having a corrective type of meeting with somebody and say, you can't do that. Or the expectations, you're not going to do that. And they go, oh, well, no, I'm entitled. And I'm not saying all people. Luckily, I think it's actually fairly rare, particularly in the fire service, from my experience. Those are things that you got to manage. 
it is a, a different culture. The breadth of your career from the culture that was then to the culture that is now, and, and it's continually transforming and manifesting, right, as we're living life in real time here. What's your take on looking back at maybe traditions that existed that need to be left behind? And are there traditions and mentalities that we need to, at our own cost, we can't let go of? Like they need to be maintained. We can't blow up the entire system. What I'm saying is there's probably some good back in those traditions or the way of being and existing. And there's probably some benefits and changes that are going to be beneficial that are new, right? So how do we marry those two together and not lose the fire service as a whole? That's a very good question. I would say there are some traditions that if they do go into the history books, it's probably okay. But there are others where I absolutely think there's value in it. I'll use the example, I'll go back to when I was a young man or, or a child. When my father had a, a visit or a friend over visiting, I called anybody that was his friend, sir or Mr. so-and-so or Mrs. so-and-so. I could not run far enough or fast enough if I said to one of my dad's friends, hey, Wayne, how you doing? I wouldn't do it. And it was funny because as I got older, I would go hunting with my dad and I would be hunting with these men and I would say, Good day, Mr. Spence. How you doing, sir? Right? And he'd say, Brent, we're drinking beer together. Call me Wayne. No, you're still Sir Mr. Spence because you're my dad's friend, right? That respect. In the fire service, showing the respect of rank is important. Not because everyone's egos need to be stroked. Not at all. I respect my chief officers. I'll call him chief. I'll call him sir. My current chief, he's a brilliant leader. Nothing but respect for my fire chief in Tay Township, Chief Amer. He's a great guy. I really have a lot of respect for him. I was his captain when he first joined. I'll still call him sir. I call him sir not only because of his rank, but because I respect the man. That would be an example of something to keep, right? It's, it's part of the culture. It's part of how we do that paramilitary organization. But how about, say, interacting with firefighters and the way that they would be spoken to, or I guess something else I would think about is the way that we coped and managed and dealt with mental health. Like, are there things that you see that were handled back then? And we understand why. Like, the very stoic society, there was a lot of reasons why it was a harder, grittier society. But do you see now that there's room for ways of coping and managing and communicating now that are, are healthier than they were before. I remember going to a car accident one time and it was uh, three kids killed. You do what you need to do and once you realize you're not viable so the coroner can do what they need to do. I walked past the rescue and there was one of the, my senior firefighters sitting on the front of the rescue crying, crying his eyes out. And this is a man who he'd eat lead and shit nails. He was a, a battle-hardened individual. And I walked up to him. I said, oh, my God. Like, are you okay? He looked at me and he goes, I started crying. I said, I, I, I can't stop. So the way I described that, his cup was full. It was just that last call that put him over. When I first joined the fire department, we had a beer fridge in the hall. We'd go to a bad call. All of us would go into the station after the truck was cleaned up and all that. And we'd have a beer or two. There was a lot of value in that because the senior firefighters would sit there and say, I've seen this before. You did the best job you could do with the training and the equipment you had and that you didn't cause that fire, you didn't cause that action. And it was coaching and mentoring actively within the station after almost every single call. We'd have that informal pyre every single call. Now, am I advocating for beers back in the hall? No, 
no, that that era has gone, and I think that's one of the ones that I think is rightfully gone, right? Yeah, because it may be a connected trauma with alcohol as coping, and then that, yeah, that yeah. can go the wrong way. Absolutely. Yeah. Even when we did have some beer, we wouldn't sit there and get drunk. Like, it wouldn't be that extreme. However, that coaching and mentoring with the senior firefighters or the officers, with the, the people who may have not ex- yet experienced that, there was a tremendous value. Beer fridge goes away, we go to that same type of scenario, a fatality or whatever the heck it is. People clean up. And unless you have an astute officer who says, all right, let's go I'll come on in the meeting room and let's, let's have a t- conversation, right? So you, as an officer, you got to be more astute. You have to be more in tune with how your staff are performing on scene. Because you will see that people kind of with their head down. You'll see the signs that they're struggling. You have to pull them aside, either individually and or as a crew and, and have that conversation. You don't have the luxury of the beer anymore, but it's still just as important. But in some cases, if that officer isn't attuned to those indicators, they'll go, okay, see you later, right? Bye. And everyone goes home and this person's sitting there and I, I call it playing the what if game. Well, what if I put my pack on quicker? What if I would laddered that window quicker? What if I, I would have been quicker with the jaws of life? Now that person might have lived. As soon as someone starts playing that what if game, they're doomed. In my mind, like the job will chew you up. You'll start internalizing. You'll start taking responsibility for stuff that is not your responsibility. Every firefighter, but certainly the officers, we all have an obligation to look out for each other. And particularly when those bad calls, have a conversation, have a cup. You can switch out beer with coffee and still do the same thing. After every fire, after every call, there's always going to be things that we could, because we're not going to perform perfectly, right? Even if we perform perfectly in practice, if we get 80% of that, that's pretty damn perfect on a scene, right? But we're always striving to be perfect. So how do people be constructively critical with themselves as they would be constructively critical with someone else to look back on what their performance was and see it honestly for what it was without spiraling down into the owning the entire responsibility of that and call not going, maybe being outcome-based and thinking like it didn't, even if there was nothing you could do, you still, people, like you said, people can beat themselves up and chew themselves up over what the what if, but is there room for, and how do you do that? Have you had that experience over the years of figuring out how to do that, of being constructively critical with yourself without being overly negative with yourself? I think one of the, the key things is when you're having that pyre, when things didn't go as smoothly as you would have hoped. The first thing I always tell an officer or whoever's leading that, it could be a senior firefighter, make sure you address the action or the behavior and not the person. You don't say, hey, Scott, you know what? You suck. You did this wrong. It's not about Scott. Hey, when we laddered that building, the angle wasn't at the right angle or whatever. And this is why it's important. So now next week, when we come back, we're going to do some extra training. And that's the first one. Take the person out of the equation. Talk about actions, talk about outcomes, talk about behaviors, not people. For the most part, from my experience, firefighters are pretty mature group. Like firefighters are pretty mature, reasonable people. And if you say, we could have done a better job. If we'd have caught that hydrant, it took a little bit longer than we anticipated in order to catch that hydrant before we had agent applied. Most firefighters that I've dealt with, will go, yep, that's right we can tighten that up. Let's take a look at how we pre-stage our equipment. You look at it from that perspective. How can we do things better? For the most part, you're going to be successful. If you have the individuals who go, wow, no, I did it perfectly all the time. That's a, a coaching opportunity for the officer. And if it continues, then it becomes a different conversation with that individual. There's no I in team. 
And I'll give an example. Not too long ago, we went to a call and we came back and I went, yeah, I'm the district chief. And I go, yeah, I kind of, I kind of blew that call, didn't I? For comms, I think it was over comms. I, I was messy with my comms. And I said to the, the member of the station, yeah, I kind of blew that. Sorry, guys, that was, that was my bad. As a district chief, if I'm willing to call myself out, then I think the, the firefighters themselves will say, yeah, you know what? And we, as a team, could tighten up here or there. If it's that PIR or that is done from the perspective of trust, and only wanting to get better, my experience is most are receptive. And if each person's owning their part of it, then it diffuses a responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about the fire where you were in command and the kid was trapped inside. It was quite a few years ago. This is well over 20 years ago. I share this story when I'm talking about command, particularly to new firefighters. Over the years, I've had many people say, it must be really, really, really stressful being in command of, of a fire. And my answer is always the same. No, actually, it's, it's very, very simple to run a fire scene. In order to demonstrate this, I'll tell you a story. We're going to play a game. My game, my rules, right? (laughs) Fair enough. So I'm going to take a rope and I'm going to tie up that rope and I'm going to tie it to the top of the CN Tower. I'm going to take the other end of that rope and I'm going to tie it to the top of the Sky Dome or Roger Center, whatever it's called now. What you have to do is you have to walk across this rope from the CN Tower to the Sky Dome. And there's no parachute, no safety harness, just you and the rope, nothing else. You can make it 10 feet across, fall to your death, you still win the game. If you make it across and successful, you win the game. But if you don't make the attempt, you lose. Got the rules? Would you do it for 100 bucks? <laughs> no. Would you do it for 1,000 bucks? Uh, no, you're going to have to go pretty high. Would you do it for a million bucks? Yeah, so do I have any safety equipment nope, or it's nothing. just me and the rope? Just you and the rope. I think that's a recipe for death, so probably no. Okay, well, that's good because that means you're sane, right? Right. <laughs> now, take that exact same scenario exactly except this time there's a bad guy and he's got a gun to your your partner at home or your children or your mom and dad or your spouse now remember if you make the attempt to fall to your death they all go free if you don't make the attempt they die would you do it yes now see how quickly you said that no hesitation yes i would do it what changed what that does is that speaks to your value system as an individual in your mind the safety and security of your family is more important than yours. So you can make exceedingly tough decisions on the spot. Boom, 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 right? So the best incident commander you will ever work with in your life clearly understand their priorities. And once you understand your priorities, you can have conflicting priorities dished out to you and you'll know what to do in what order because what's first is always first. Now let's go back to the story about, it was uh, about 20 some odd years ago. We got dispatched out to a single detached family dwelling. I was in the first truck in. I was the first officer on scene. As soon as I jumped out, dad came running up to me and he said, little Johnny's inside. I said, we're we're not going in. I called dispatch. I announced my command. And then for my strategy, I announced a defensive strategy. Dad, understandably, wanted to punch me in the face. I 100% get that. I understand why he was so mad at me. But I looked at that fire and I thought, A, there's zero chance that little Johnny's alive if he's still inside. And B, I'm not putting my firefighters in harm's way to rescue a body. Now, later on in that scene, about 45 minutes later, little Johnny actually came walking down the street and he was at a friend's house dad didn't know. I didn't have the benefit of that. I didn't have the luxury of that knowledge when I made that decision, but I still stood by my decision. Even if little Johnny would have passed, 
I still would have made the right decision. Based on what you saw, there wasn't survivable space. It was was not a survivable space, and I wasn't going to risk my firefighters for a corpse. When I'm talking about incident command and how you manage decision-making, at one point in that fire, this is after we realized that the child was not in the house and everybody was safe and accounted for. I was standing there. I had somebody come up to me and say, hey, there's ashes getting all over my boat. Can you wash my boat? And I had someone else come to me and say, hey, can you move your hose? Because the beer store is going to close in like half an hour and I got to get to the beer store. The TV station come up, hey, can you give us an interview? And then I had someone say, we're running low on water. Where did my attention go? Yeah, the low on water. Low on water. Everyone else, get the heck out of my face. Now, at some point, the most important thing in my world was moving that hose so the guy could get to the beer store. But you deal with what's first first. That's the lesson that I took away from that. I always share that with, I don't care whether it's a firefighter or or a young officer or anybody. The benefit of a firefighter learning those lessons is if you understand your incident commander's priorities, how you communicate and pass up information should be prioritized the way that incident commander is going to process it. There's value in having those conversations and teaching their staff at regardless of their rank. Even giving a report to medics when they come in, if you're there first and you've assessed and treated the patient, and you, if you give a story that's very directed to what the priorities are, then they're going to listen. You're a benefit to the patient, whereas if you ramble on, they're just going to like, okay, you just pass you by and figure it themselves. How did SFA come to be? How did you get connected with Gord and Jesse? And walk me through that. I've been teaching there for a few years, like on and off, right? Different disciplines. I like how they run their school and I like how they deliver their programming. I had the benefit of seeing a lot of schools and a lot of fire departments in my capacity as with the fire marshal office. I would go around to different places around the province and even do testing. And I'd look at how the school's testing and their equipment and all that type of stuff. I started out from early the position of having a lot of respect for what SFA did under the leadership of Gord, Sarah, Jesse, and Brad. A while back, they reached out to me and they asked me if I'd be interested in taking a job as the principal. And I said, no, not right now, because I'm having too much fun with the fire marshal office. I said, no, when I retire from the fire marshal office, I could see that being a good fit. And that was a few years back. Uh, They reached out again, and Gord was looking at stepping back from the business a little bit. Hopefully, I don't want to lose a man because like, he's, he's now taking the job as vice principal. So he's still got tons to offer the organization. He's a brilliant man. I love him to death. But he did want to step back. So they needed someone. So they asked me again if I'd be interested in doing it. What I did is I went to my boss and had the conversation. And from my boss, I went to the assistant deputy fire marshal. The way it was presented to me is I was granted a two-year leave of absence. They said, either we could lose you forever if I quit, which I hadn't decided to be fair, or get around to do your leave of absence and then come back two years, hopefully a little smarter, a little wiser, more current training opportunity, that type of stuff. They granted me the two-year leave of absence. And the other part of it, like I said before, I love working for the OFM. It really is good work. Last year, I helped either pulled out or helped pulled out or attended fires. I pulled out 34 bodies last year, fatal fires. And I don't say that, I'm not referring to the, the mental stress of the, just to give you an idea how much I went on the road. You're compensated very well with the OFM for being on the road, but you're on the road a lot. And so my, my senior officers at the OFM offered me the opportunity to do the two-year leave of absence. I took it. The idea of sleeping in my own bed for two years, because I could literally skateboard down the road and go to school every day, is very, very appealing. 
equally as important to me is the fact that I both trust and respect Jesse, Brad, Gord, the team at SFA. And I agree with their delivery model. I agree with the corporate philosophies. I think that as you go through your career, your peers in, in the industry will give you credibility. Credibility at like at tokens. You work hard, you get credibility. The value of your opinion, the value of what you do either goes up or down depending on what you do or don't do. So I'm very mindful of whose wagon I hook my horse to. I've may not always been perfect, but I've always done my best to do the best job I can do. SFA very closely aligned with my priorities as far as teaching and learning and, and how the business was run. I'm thrilled to death to be doing it. I was talking to my wife a few days ago, six weeks now, I haven't slept in a hotel. <laughs> I've been in my own bed every night, which is it's very nice. And then the other part of it is I'm having a ton of fun. Gord has stepped back a little bit, but Brad and Jesse have allotted me the freedom to make some very strategic changes in the organization. I'm super excited about where the, the organization is and, and where we're going to be a year from now. I'm very confident that once we start making formal announcements of the different programs and delivery models that we're looking at, it's only going to mean huge success for the organization, as well as, and probably it could be argued even more important, it's going to be a very, very helpful tool for the fire services in Ontario. With the closing of the Ontario Fire College, with mandatory certification coming down the pipe, these municipalities, with very limited budgets in a lot of cases, have a lot of work to do. We're working really hard to come up with products and delivery models that will help them be a good steward of the taxpayers' dollars, but still be a good employer to keep their staff well-trained and safe. I'm very excited about some of the new products we're coming out with very, very soon. With the two streams for candidates looking to get on to fire departments and then also the other stream being current firefighters and departments. Yep, exactly. Yeah, the one stream with the individuals who are coming boot camps, right? I think we produce a very good candidate if they're successful. It may sound a little counterintuitive, but I'm actually proud of the fact that we got that 10 to 20% failure rate. When I'm talking to a student or a, someone interested in becoming a, a student with SFA, I'm painfully blunt with them. There's other schools out there because I've, I've worked, I know what they are, that if you want a guaranteed certificate, don't come here. If you want to get pushed beyond where you think you can do. Want an honest look at if you're ready or not. Exactly. If you want the easy diplomas, we're probably not the school. We're not a diploma mill. We're going to push you harder. We're going to push you beyond where you think you can do. We're going to do it all the time being professional and all that. But I believe, as certainly as sitting in the position of principal, I would say I'm ethically obliged to make sure that the candidates, if they are successful in our program, that I would be happy to have them go into a fire with me. If I can't say that, I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. It's irresponsible for their safety, for the people that they're going to be working with, and then for the community. You've mentioned you've been around and seen a lot of different schools. You've obviously interacted with a lot of fire departments. Are there any commonalities struggles, issues that you see out there where we need to tighten up that we can improve and that you sort of see your role here starting at SFA about you can help to do your part and the school can do its part to help bring those changes to fruition. Are there common things that you see out there that are problems amongst departments in general in the service, at least in Canada? One of the common challenges that I see most municipalities struggling with, particularly on your volunteer or composite scale. And I will say even some big full-time departments, I've seen it also in those jurisdictions as well. 
the individual, if I actually went back and audited what I did as a training officer, I would probably be disappointed with what I did 20 years ago. I, actually, I, I'm not, there's no probably. I would have been. But record keeping, keeping track of the records, making sure that they, the students signed off their JPRs, uh, make sure the recurrency is good, all that important stuff. That ties in very closely with the new products we're going to be launching with SFA, where a municipality can come to us and I can say, what's your level of service? Right? What do you do to what level? And say, here's your training materials, here's your safety plans, here's your JPRs, here's everything you need to do in order to provide a quality service to your, your residents and or visitors in your jurisdiction. Here's everything you need to prove from the perspective of due diligence, from an audit perspective, that you've done everything reasonable under the circumstance to make sure your train is safe and trained and all that type of good stuff. And at the same time, actually reduce the overall cost to the municipality. Because right now, from my perspective, the municipalities, depending on how big it is, you may have a full-time chief, maybe a full-time deputy. After that, you may have some part-time staff chief training officer, prevention officer, those types of disciplines. In order to even get to the point where you're able to deliver a quality product for training, my math tells me in talking with many, many chiefs that I've had conversations over the years is that you're going to spend anywhere from 200 to 400 hours a year, not delivering, to get you to the point where you're ready to deliver. And that's doing your PowerPoint, lesson plans, safety plans, making sure you understand how the different pieces of legislation impact your operation, all of that, the upfront work. If we can take a big chunk of that and then give that to the municipality, so now... Without every municipality doesn't have to do their own thing. Exactly. So when I first got to SFA, very, very shortly after I got there, I asked the question, I said, look at all the work that you have here. Like, you got lesson plans for... 1006 disciplines and pump ops and like all of this work. And then I said, what do you do with it when you're not teaching it? And the answer is it sits on a hard drive or it sits on a shelf or, or whatever. I said, my goodness, we got to leverage that, right? We got to leverage that and then share that with the fire service. My favorite type of business scenario is, is that win-win. The municipality will actually save money compared to doing that work themselves. They're going to have the confidence that the product is current to the latest standards and always kept current, they'll actually save money and then we'll make a little bit of money, not a whole Which lot. Which you have to because you're putting in work, and yep. but you get value and they get value. But yeah, we're leveraging all that work and then instead of having it for just SFA, we'll be able to share that work across the province. You mentioned mandatory certification coming back. So give me your take on JPRs, NFPA, mandatory certification. Are they getting closer to the way business is done on the trucks? Are there still stumbling blocks? Are we far away from that? How do you see us getting towards aligning the way we're doing sign-offs with the way, then maybe the number of ways each skill might be done practically, efficiently, effectively, safely, educated aggressively, not as in, well, that you know, put, throw that book away. This is the way we actually do it. And it's actually not <laughs> the best way to do it. How do you see that gap between the two? And is it getting closer together? And can we get there? I would say it depends on the discipline. I do think the work from the uh, fire marshal's office, NFPA, those committees and those organizing bodies, I know there's work and certainly working very, very hard to put out a quality product. I have a lot of respect for the work that they've done. In some disciplines, I would say, yes, they're actually getting closer. They're getting closer to real world application, taking a, a JPR that was 10 steps before and shorten it up to 
five or six steps, which again is, I think, more indicative to what you're actually going to do on the job. Or maybe opening it up by saying, use an approved method to do X. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like a good example would be donning and doffing SCBA. Who says that putting it over the head is the method? Right. There's the coat method. There's like, there's lots of different methods. As a fire service, we have to be mature enough to say, I'm going to put on my bunker just a little bit different than you. But at the end of the day, I'm going to be all buttoned up. I'm going to be ready for whatever task has been assigned to me. The outcome matters, not the process. Exactly. There's still opportunities. Now, if you take the company officer program, when I did my company officer program, it was 16 weeks at the fire college. I am so happy that I went through that process because now if you get a company officer or the fire officer now, there's fire officer one, two, three, four. When I did my company officer, it took me 16 weeks and that gave me the equivalent of fire officer one and two. Then I did it fire officer three and four to the current NFPA standard. If you take your fire officer level one, there's a huge, huge gap with what I think the fire service actually needs and what the NFPA standard is teaching. A person sitting in their right seat of a pumper, they don't have to know how to write a memo to council. They don't have to know how to balance a budget. That's not their job. That's a PC or a DC or, or somebody else like that. What the fire officer needs to know is the art of reading smoke, building construction, suppression techniques, fire dynamics. They need to know those skills that's going to help them do their job more effectively and keep their staff safe. People dynamics. Yeah, exactly. And not how to write a letter to council. Now the challenge is, because that's the standard, we have to deliver that training. But we have identified that as, as a huge challenge. So we're creating curriculum that'll be coming out fairly soon. And we're going to call it Beyond the Academy. So that you get a new officer or even a fire officer who wants to hone their skills. And we're going to bring back some of these, these skills they need in order to sit in that right seat and keep their staff safe. Because the NFPA standard, in my opinion, just doesn't cut it. Not certainly for the fire. Fire officer is one of my biggest challenges that I have. And at any level in the fire service, I think it's fair to say that no department is able to logistically, even if their intent is good, to provide their people with everything that they need. No, there's just too many disciplines. Now, obviously, you know, you need to look at uh, establishing regulating bylaw, find out what their services are and to what level and train within that. But let's take something as simple as ice and water. If you do that wrong, you train your staff wrong, the outcomes can be catastrophic, not unlike any other discipline. But if you take a look at the legislative touch points, you're dealing with the Ministry of Transportation, you're dealing with Ministry of the Environment. Like there, there's so many touch points, standard operational guidelines, policies, and procedures. There's legislation at the federal, provincial, municipal, and then the governance within the fire department itself that you have to bring all that together in order to train your staff. Section 21 guidance notes, making sure that you look at every, every single training scenario, make sure you apply all the appropriate Section 21 guidance notes and to keep your staff safe. And that is your job. Especially in training. Especially in training. In order to keep your head wrapped around that, that's a lot, a lot of work. And that's where I think the, the value comes from us working with municipality, leveraging on that work that we have to do as a private career college, governed by the Ministry of Colleges and Universities, we have to do our due diligence and rightfully so. But now we can take all that hard work that our staff has done and leverage it and share those experiences with the fire service. So do you think there needs to be at the company level, crew level, there needs to be a bit of grace given to administrations and training divisions 
of what they actually have to meet and what the standards are, as opposed to saying, ah, that's all bullshit. Like, we'll just do it this way. It's easy to get frustrated at a crew level when you don't understand processes. You don't understand, you haven't taken the time, right? This happens often where you just don't, you don't take the time. You don't care enough to dive deep to find out all the details that go into something. And so you quickly judge it and or dismiss it. So do you think there needs to be what can be done at the crew level is either A, educate yourself and find out what all the processes are in place. And you may not like it, but it's what it is right now. So you're working with it. And if you want to change it, then get involved into changing it. But a little bit of grace can be given to the processes and the logistics and everything has to go into providing training for people and writing SOGs and SOPs. Right. And then there needs to be a little bit of grace given from those governing bodies to understand what's happening on the street and what needs to be done day to day. You make a really good point. So one of my little pet peeves in the fire service is standard operating procedures. A standing operating procedure is if you've been drinking, do not go to the fire. Procedure, hard stop. This is absolutely unequivocally. But I am not a fan of a standard operating procedure in most cases. Because my first question when I see a standard operating procedure, the first question I have is, what standard are you citing? If you're going to say a standard, what standard? Are you citing an FPA standard? Are you citing municipal bylaws? Are you citing international standards? What standard are you citing? That's first, my first question. Where did this bubble up from? Where did it come from? Yeah. Where do you say this is the standard we need to follow? That's my first one. The second one is, if you have trained qualified staff, I'm a believer in operational guidelines. So when you roll up to a house, a procedure could be you catch the hydrant, you drag the hose, you energize your, like, there's step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, to the point where the fire's out. Or you could say, here's the guideline, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But life, because of what you see, what you experience as a firefighter or as, a, as an officer, you say, you know what, that smoke doesn't look that bad. I'm not going to catch the hydrant this time. I'm going to stretch a line and I'm going to get in there really fast. So you may go step five, six, seven, one, two, eight, nine. And you can justify that based on your training and experience. And you can vary from the, the expected guideline. But I, I believe in empowering officers and firefighters to do a guideline. Now, do I think we should just go willy-nilly? 100%. No, no. The value in guidelines is if you ordered me to go in and do a cert. And the guideline is expected right or expected left, depending on which municipality you're dealing with. Unless you tell me you're doing something different, I'm going to expect, I'm going to be going in right. And I'm going to do my search. If I'm the firefighter tasked to go in and I look right and there's nothing and I hear something on the left, I should be able to say, I'm going to go left because I think I hear something. And I'm going to call command, say, conducting left-hand search. And you're going to go, okay, they've gone left for whatever reason. Whatever reason, I trust their judgment and off they go. But micromanaging through SOPs or even incredibly detailed SOGs where they're pretty much our SOPs because there's SOGs that are written as like, this is an SOP. (laughs) It's so micromanaged down to the finest points. That's just based out of fear, right? It's based out of cover your ass. Like if we put all this down in black and white, then if anything ever happens, then we're covered. There's that understanding that how are we covered to know that we've given the people the proper training, but also giving them the, the free room, the free reign, but not freelancing. I don't want to use that word. They're empowered to act and they can justify and everyone is covered. The way I would answer that is this, is if I'm going to give one of my firefighters or my officers or whoever the ability to go with a guideline, I think it's incumbent upon me, if I was the, the chief, to make sure that they understand 
what the normal guideline is, but then it's incumbent upon me to teach them why they do a thing. If you teach someone why they ventilate before suppression or why they, why they do things, they can troubleshoot now, as opposed to, I hit nail this time, this time, this time. That's my job. If you teach someone, this is what you do and this is why you do it. So now when they're faced with a circumstance that doesn't line up with what their preconceived notions of how you fight a fire or cut a car apart or whatever that is, if you teach them on, on why you do things, they can troubleshoot, they can vary from the expected procedure and come out with as good or even, I'm going to suggest, even better outcomes for the people we're there to help. If you're going to go straight to a guideline, you teach them how to do it, but then you also concentrate on why you do a thing. And I think it's common too on the street level of things to say, well, I find them to be kind of dismissive or avoidance comments like, oh, every fire is different. Or, oh, there's a hundred ways to skin a cat. Like these vague statements are made. And what I feel like people are often walking themselves towards or giving themselves the out of like, well, we don't need to learn a tactic or eight or five tactics or six tactics as options for this case because every fire is different. So we'll just figure it out when we get there. So it does maybe speak to that, right? That where there are specific foundational things you should be knowing to use for the variations that are different. So all residential house fires in general are in a box. They're kind of the same. I know you have hoarders. I know you have vacants. Like there's variations, but residential house fires don't operate like high rise fires. All high rise fires, they're different than residential fires, but they're all kind of the same. And industries, and there's a lot of variables with industries, but a commercial fire, they're kind of in their own box too. So every fire is different, but within the categories, there's similarities that you can then pull from your tactics training that you've done. So just give me your take on that. I know I kind of laid up my view of it, but maybe I'm just trying to give you a, a springboard here to maybe to rant off on. I agree. A good example of that would be to teach your firefighters and your officers fire dynamics. If you take a look at a fire, you should be able to predict some measure of confidence how that building and how that fire is going to perform once you apply an agent or once you ventilate or once it's, if it's a wind blown, like if it's, it's a heavy wind. Because it's physics. Because it's physics. If, and if you understand why things happen the way they do, you will make better command decisions or tactical decisions, or even as a firefighter, task. You'll suppress the fire. Instead of going with a straight stream, you'll go with a 30-degree fog or, or whatever that situation demands. Like, I love fire dynamics. Actually, I just had a conversation with Andrew Broussard, Brass. I love the man to death. He's yeah. brilliant. You know, he's probably forgotten more about firefighters than most people ever learn in their sure. lives, right? I was just talking with him yesterday about this very topic, fire dynamics and to get from the scientific theories and how to learn how to transition, how to apply that to what the firefighter does. If you can bridge that gap, now you can trust the decision-making process that your staff are going to make. Is there a place for procedures and policies? 100%. And I would say the more trained and qualified your staff are, the more lenience they should have to vary from that guideline. If I have a brand new rookie firefighter who's just done their boot camp and, and that's it, I'm not going to give that individual a whole lot of latitude to vary from anything that I would expect. If I had a firefighter I was working with like brass, I'm going to just give him a tactical objective and say, tell me what you're going to do. And, and Your sector it. does this go. Sector, yeah, sector and go. I understand and I appreciate what you're saying is if you understand a single compartment fire works, a single detached family dwelling 
the high rise, if you understand the physics and how that building should perform, again, it goes back to what I said before. If you can understand why you do a thing and how it's going to perform, then you'll make better decisions. So you mentioned all the fatal fires that you've been to through the OFM. You have obviously your own experience going to fires. And I'm sure you're aware of a lot of NIST reports and line of duty deaths, and, and we can go on and on about all those difficult and challenging calls. And it's non-debatable that fire events do happen that are out of the control of the members. And whether they knew all the fire dynamics they could, whether they saw the things they saw, their decisions were sound, we understand that fire events happen. Windows fail, flow paths change, wind driven, you can go on and on and on and on. Actions by public, actions by other services. You can't give me a number. I'm just trying to get a feel for what's actually happening out there. How often, when you look at fires that had adverse events or outcomes, was it based on lack of training, lack of understanding, or not following procedures or guidelines properly? In your mind, are you able to answer that? Is there like a sense of like how often that happens? And is it at a level where it's concerning? Is it still happening? I guess that's what I'm driving at. The first area of concern is with the knowledge of the general public. A vast majority of the fatal fires that I attended weren't because the fire department didn't do the job right or weren't because of their response or, or those types of challenges. Everyone that was deceased was deceased before the fire department even learned about it. Is there solutions to that or stuff that as a society we can do a better job? Mandatory sprinklers? Hell yeah, right? Mandatory sprinklers. Like, I would love to see the fire service slowly start getting out of the, the business of suppression and getting into the job of cleanup afterwards. You can even go mandatory fire alarm monitoring system because vast majority of the fatal fires I went to, from the time the fire in the incipient stage to detection, might have been hours. Right. And we've been to some where it's days. Someone say, oh, geez, I haven't seen Fred in a long time. And they walk in, the house is burnt literally to the ground. There was no notification at all. Are there still challenges with training? hundred percent. But from my perspective, I think as a province, I think we're getting better. With the direction from the fire marshal of making mandatory certification a thing, that's only going to help us as a service. The other challenge, and it's a real challenge, and I, I don't know the answer, is the, the funding model. We ask municipal fire services to train in all of these different disciplines to make sure our staff are trained and equipped and all that type of stuff. If you're a big urban fire department, it's a far less significant. There are fire departments out there who they literally, not figuratively, literally do not give their firefighters one penny at all. They're not even paid on call. They literally don't make a penny. And in fact, it does nothing but cost them money. They buy their own fuel, their own time off work, like everything. And God bless these ladies and gentlemen are out there doing this stuff. And, and I've worked with some municipal or some of these fire departments who are 100% pure volunteer and they're training just as hard as right. some of the departments that get paid. Going to the same fires. Going to the same fires. There's right? no volunteer fires and professional fires. <laughs> but is it a challenge? 100%, right? Particularly, like I said, when I joined, the average firefighter had 25 years. So training wasn't as important. It was important, but it wasn't as important because the average person had... 25 years on this job. They'd seen, been there, seen that, done that, had the t-shirt from multiple years of experience. And, and, and now let's take a look at the average years of service, particularly on a volunteer fire department. Yeah, very low. 
very low. Like, I don't know the exact number. I haven't read stats lately. But I'm going to suggest it's probably in that five, seven-year range. Actually, the Canadian Association of Fire Chiefs just did a report to the federal government. Anyone's interested, there's actually a really good video. It talks about the, the reality of volunteer fire services in, in Canada, the reality of the challenges and training. Difficulty talk, getting people. Retraining and retention, right? It talks about those realities. Without having those firefighters with 20 plus years, you can't rely on experience. So what do you have to do? You have to rely on training. You have to rely on the fact their staff are going to be trained. They're going to have guidelines or policy. Like they're going to have that infrastructure behind them in order to keep them safe. And individuals and departments have to realize, like we've just touched on before, that they can't possibly provide their people with everything that's needed. So they are going to have to either as individuals, you have to go outside and get what you want or need, or uh, departments have to source out to get their people what they need. Yeah, source out to schools, not unlike Southwest Fire Academy, where you can come in and the municipal fire service that, say, reaches out to Southwest. I'll use an example of uh, ice and water or flood or something like that. You're going to have trained staff in-house if if it's a service that you provide in your municipality. But average municipality is going to go to two, three, five of those types of calls a year. Those individuals trained in-house could train the next generation but they're coming at it from the perspective of two, three, four responses a year. You come to a school like Southwest and you're going to get a guy like Gord Roche. Gord goes around the province teaching it to everyone. And like we said before, the best practitioners of a discipline are the people who also teach it, right? Because they, they have the advantage of learning from other people. They have the advantage of having those skills dead sharp. If you're doing, looking at an ice water rescue course, bringing in a, a specialty company like SFA with a gentleman as qualified as Gord Roche or Andrew Broussard or some of the other big names that we've got in the school, you're going to get the best of the best. Do you need SFA or another service delivery company like that delivering something like medical? Probably not, unless there's a change in the standard. Because let's face it, most municipal fire service, about 50% of their business there's a lot of medical. So those skills are sharp. Like we, we, we get the repetitions, that sets and reps, sets and reps, sets and reps. We're out running those calls. So unless there's a change in legislation, a change in policy, like I would suggest most municipal fire service are going to be pretty darn good at it. But what you're looking for is those low frequency, high uh, outcomes, like right. dangerous outcomes. Yeah. That's where you need to concentrate your training efforts, driver training. Do we need to bring in an outside contractor for uh, someone who's already trained and certified to reinforce driver training? I'm going to suggest probably not. Firefighters drive trucks all the time and is providing they, they're doing the right thing, you're good. But you take the trench rescue where you may go to those two or three times, you hire a company like SFA and we're going to bring in a guy like Mike Tazarski yeah. who's known across North America. Yeah. Rewriting standards, creating new standards. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you get to learn from those topical experts. That's where I think if I was a fire chief, that's what I would look. I would first look at my low frequency, high impact type of scenarios. And if it's a service that I provided in my jurisdiction, that's where I would start spending my money for the maintenance type training. And then obviously the other thing I would look at is make sure that my firefighters, when they first come in and get on my trucks, that they're trained and qualified to the right standard. They're not going to get someone's bad habit or someone else's lessons that, ah, oh, that's good enough. 
You're going to pound into them the discipline about doing the job right every single time. And then you can just maintain those skills as your service grows. Anything else you want to cover that you came here today and you thought you wanted to talk about before I let you go? Is there anything you would leave for people that want to get into the job, people that want to promote? Do you have any advice maybe for people listening that you want to pass on? To the individuals who want to become either volunteer or full-time firefighters, I would say this. Whether you think you can or whether you think you can't do a thing, you're always right, regardless of your reality, seasoned with reason. Like if I said to you, I'm going to be an astronaut tomorrow, chances are that's not going to happen. Unless I, you know, befriend Elon Musk and I get him to put me up in a spaceship. And when I, even when I season it with reason, only a light seasoning with the reason. But it, whether you think you can, whether you think you can't do a thing, you're always right. You've got to go for it and you've got to be willing to pay the price. For the individuals who want to do this firefighting thing <laughs> as a career, just never give up on yourself. Just keep working. And when you think you know enough, that's when you need to learn more. When you think you've got enough courses or you think you've got enough experience or you think you've got enough volunteer hours, do more. I remember years ago, actually it was my company officer course when I took back, it would probably be 20 some years ago at the fire college. One of the things you had to do is write out a mission statement. I wrote three mission statements. There's a very fine line between a dream and a goal. A dream is pixie dust and... Uh, maybe someday, you know, a, a safe full of gold is going to land in my backyard. That's a dream. A goal, the only difference between a goal and a dream is a goal is something you want to achieve, but you put a, a date to it. I'll, I'll share with you a couple of my thoughts. One of my mission statements in life is I wrote, I want to die discontentedly happy. I hope I never am content unless I'm 99 years old I'm saying goodbye to my family and I'm going to, I'm going to kick off and like the next day I can say, okay, now I'm content. I've done what I, I set out to do. I never want to be content, but I'm happy. I got a beautiful wife. I got great kids. I got a good job. I got a wonderful home. I got outstanding friends outside of fire. I got absolutely brilliant friends in the, within the fire service. I'm a happy guy. I've got a good life, but I never want to be content. The other thing I would say is, is if your goal is to become a full-time firefighter, you have to say, I'm going to be a full-time firefighter by the year 2025. And then what you have to do is you have to take that goal and you have to look at it every single day. So what I used to do, sounds flaky, but I would put it in the corner of my mirror and I'd be brushing my teeth and going, oh yeah, I said I was going to achieve that goal in this amount of time. And you, you look at it and you look at it and you look at it. The subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between a truth and a reality. And I'm not a psychiatrist, so if anyone wants to disagree, fine, that's fine. I, I just, this is just your take on it. This is my take. The subconscious doesn't know the difference between a truth and a lie. So if I said to myself, I'm going to be a fire chief before I'm hit 35, right. and I looked at it every day, every day, every day, and you tell yourself that enough times, at some point your subconscious goes, eh, well, this is now a truth. And you can use that same thought process to say, I want to be a, f- a full-time firefighter by such and such a date. You tell yourself that, you tell yourself that, you tell yourself that. Now, as you go through life, when you're coming to a decision, when someone says, hey, we got opportunity now for extra training this weekend, or you can go drinking with with your friends. The decision-making process for humans, your subconscious controls a big chunk of how you make decisions. We go through that Rolodex of experience and things we've done, and that'll kind of guide what we're going to do going forward. 
if you said your goal is to become a full-time firefighter by the time you hit 25 or 30 or whatever your goal is, and you come up with a choice, I can do extra training this weekend or I can go drinking with my friends. The subconscious is going to help you make decisions. And your subconscious is going to go, yeah, I could probably have a lot of fun out with my friends and enjoy their, their friendship, but I'm going to do the training. Right. Instant gratification versus delayed gratification. 100%. I always encourage young people or old people, not, I include myself in that. If you got a goal, write it down. If you write it, and when you write it down, look at it. Look at it and keep looking at it and make sure you start to internalize it. I can tell you, and I'm not going to share all my goals, but every single goal that I have written down for myself, I've missed dates to be sure, but I have achieved every single goal. And when I look back at that kid over 50 years ago who couldn't read or write, if I said half those goals to that kid, he would have looked at me and gone, ah, are you completely insane? There is no way you can go from reading, having grade three phonics books, drinking a beer, to being a principal of a fire academy. And I don't say that because, oh, look at me. Like, no. oh, but but when it's I'm a reality s- that you recognize what it was and you put the work in and you exactly. are where you are. Yeah. yeah. And, and if, these, if these people, whatever their goal is, they become police officers, could become paramedic, could be fire, could be a doctor, it could be, whatever it is, or just to be, raise their family and be the best at raising a family. That's, that's an awesome goal. If you set your mind to it, you'll do it. Like, uh, that's been my experience. Because the other thing I will say, I'm truly, truly blessed. There's a few things I can say in life that I absolutely did 100% right. Like no chance for make do-overs or whatever. One thing I absolutely did right is I married right. My wife, I love her to death. She still drives me nuts, and I'm sure I drive her nuts. We've been married, uh, this summer will be 35 years. I love her to death. She has put up with me doing all of switching jobs, going from being a tool and die maker to a supervisor to OFM, now back to being a school. And God bless her. She's like, okay, if that's what you want to do, you know. So that gets me to my other point is if you have goals in life, associate yourself with people who have achieved what you want to achieve or who are supportive in you achieving what you want to achieve. I've told my kids all through their, when they're little wee kids, all the way, and I still preach on them because they're my kids. I'm allowed to. If you hang out with shit, you will start to stink. If you hang out with somebody who does uh, recreational drugs, chances are you're going to get into it. If you hang out with someone who's a full-time firefighter and, and excited about training and excited about that success too will rub off on you. Like that whole thing, you're most like the five people that you hang out with. How can people reach out to you if they want to connect? I'd like to encourage that, whether it's a young person wanting to be a full-time firefighter and has questions, they can reach out to uh, my uh, uh, work email, which is bsterling at fire-academy.ca. Stop by the school. Yeah. I, I love giving tours. So if someone thinks that the, the gig might be for them, come through and do a walkthrough. Ask questions, inquire. And at the end of it, you may go, ah, not for me. Right. Or the other side, you may go, oh, this is definitely for me. People got questions, comments, concerns, reach out. I'm always happy to, to have a conversation with somebody, particularly if they're in pursuit of whatever their goal is. I, I enjoy that. Well, I'm glad we had the opportunity to have this conversation today. I enjoyed the talk. I Thank you very much for the opportunity. I, uh, I enjoyed it. <laughs>